You are listening to episode 64 of Stoicism on Fire. Hello, everyone. This is Chris Fisher, welcoming you to the Stoicism on Fire podcast, where the ancient practice of Stoic philosophy as a way of life and rational form of spirituality is still alive. Well, today I'm excited to have Will Johncock with me. He's the author of a relatively new book, Beyond the Individual, Stoic Philosophy on Community and Connection. I would like to say right up front, it's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. And I'm excited about this interview because there aren't too many uh, books that I pick up nowadays on Stoicism that I find really intriguing and that draw me in. The last time, uh, obviously, Pierre Haydo's Inner Citadel did that for me, and so today, A. Long's book on Epictetus. So your book is, I would put it in in the rare category with just a few others that when I picked it up, it, I was a little bit awestruck. I was like, okay, this is, this is different. This is something new, and we'll get into that. And by new, I mean in the, within the milieu of uh, books that are out there today and being published in the world of Stoicism, this is something pretty unique. So... Uh, I'd like to start by giving you the chance, Will, to introduce yourself to the Stoicism on Fire audience. Tell us a little bit about your background, where you're at, what you're doing, and how you came to Stoicism. So, thank you, Chris. That's uh, quite a an introduction, and thank you also for the characterization of the book. I hope it lives up to the expectations. My background is in sociology and philosophy. Uh, my doctorate studies were in 20th century philosophy and 20th century sociology on questions around the distinction between the individual and the social. So I have a history of being interested in this kind of uh, line, let's say, where do we begin and society ends and vice versa. And through my studies, particularly through my graduate studies, I was more and more familiarized with Stoicism through exposure to the classics, Plato, Aristotle, the contemporaries of the Stoics. But as people will often find, the Stoics are mentioned rather briefly in, in commentaries on Plato and Aristotle, and in particular. And so I really had this basic understanding of Stoicism. I'd read a little, I'd read meditations, I think I'd read a little of the discourses from Epictetus. But I wouldn't say that I'd ventured deeply into the Stoics. As I then became more invested in ideas around where we begin and where we end and our relationship with our, with our surroundings, with our uh, physical surroundings in particular, I became more and more aware of uh, various Stoic theories. And then through 20th century philosophies, particularly uh, Michel Foucault and Kristeva, Julia Kristeva, uh, Stoicism started to become more and more present in my inquiries, both academically, but also uh, just on a day-to-day level. And 2010, 2011 was when I started to dedicate some time to studying the Stoics on their own, without being part of a collaborative study, let's say, with 20th century philosophies. And my interest was sparked at the same time as Stoicism seemed to be getting this popular uh, personality. It was becoming commented on and raised in 
uh, public discussions more and more frequently. And who's to say whether that didn't play a part in my exposure and interest in stoicism? I don't know exactly, but I do know from where the academic impetus came. And so we're looking at that time when stoicism is starting to really explode in popularity. And for one reason or another, I, I was part of that. And therefore, uh, from that moment, I've, I've, I've attended to stoic theories more and more uh, acutely and have subscribed to some of the commentaries and some of the popular positions on stoicism and, uh, and refuted others. Well, great. You know, when I picked up the book and I started reading, I made it through your your first chapter, which is, uh, you know, basically an introduction kind of sets the groundwork for the book. But a couple of passages jumped out at me, and I'd like to read a couple of those. Uh, the first one reads, given the currently fruitful intersection between Stoicism and self-help literature, it could be surprising to consider that using Stoic philosophy with the exclusive or even main intention of serving our own personal needs or goals might not straightforwardly cohere with the ancient Stoic project. And that's on page two. And then on uh, page four, an overly individualistic perspective might sound practical in terms of self-development. However, we cannot define it as Stoic. And then on page six, portrayals of Stoic philosophy as a useful self-help guide for individuals are justified. Thousands of people report that integrating certain Stoic techniques does improve their personal well-being. So right from the beginning, I had this sense that, okay, this is something different, uh, meaning you're approaching the topic from a different angle than what is common in most of the, I would say, popularized books on, on Stoicism. And you appear to agree with me. You think that what we might popularly call modern Stoicism, the, the uh, more psychotherapeutic self-help version of stoicism that exists out there is useful for a lot of people, helpful for a lot of people, but distinct from what obviously you're writing about in the book, because when you get to chapter two, it's quite clear that you are on a completely different mission than what would be considered a modern stoicism. So, you know, a tip of the hat to what people are doing over there, but you take a completely different approach. You know, sometimes you'll see some of the popularizers kind of mention physics as a sidebar, oftentimes to dismiss it. You don't just mention physics. I mean, I was blown away by chapter two. You dive into the deep end of the pool head first. <laughs> and it appears as though you're approaching the whole practice of stoicism, the whole concept in a much more traditional perspective, which is through the physics and making some connections. That first chapter titled Shared Minds. I'd love for you to, to talk about that and what what was maybe your inspiration for it and the idea there? So firstly, you're right. I didn't want to completely discount the credit of applications in the modern era of stoicism to individual psychological therapies. It's undeniable that there is uh, there is a use there and any many accounts online verify this. So it wasn't a matter of me saying all of this is wrong. This is right. Or rather, I felt that the literature in the modern era on Stoicism needs a little balance, and it does get it embedded within works such as from Christopher Gill or William Stevens, Anthony Long. Like These are pedigreed scholars who do attend to all of the nuances of the philosophy. But there aren't that many texts which are attending to uh, the beyond the individual aspect of the philosophy. And so in chapter one, chapter two, sorry, when I'm 
exploring this idea of the shared mind. I suppose it is a response to characterizations of Stoicism, which do portray the mind as this internality that's housed off, completely separated from the rest of the world and as uh, setting up a real border that cannot be traversed between one's own mind and the rest of the world. And I think characterizations of Stoicism like this, they do appeal to people who are looking for this idea about what they can control and what they can reduce their anxiety about, but they don't really reflect the physics and the structure that Stoicism is built on and the idea that what is our internality, according to the Stoics, which is our mind, the seat of our reason, is a fragment, is a portion, is a trace of everything else around us. And so my motivation in that chapter is to really highlight that, because I think without that, the rest of the discussion around uh, the mental side of Stoicism doesn't have the basis that it deserves. Stoicism is, I think, a real exploration in how our internality shares a real kinship with other people's internalities and shares a real kinship with the world at large. One of the questions that I'm frequently asked is, well, what difference does it make? What difference does it make whether I you know, believe in this stoic worldview and assent to the, the idea of uh, you know, providence and a divine mind and all of that? And I think your book really draws that out from an ethical perspective, not a, not, I mean, you do a very good job of covering the theory, but what I mean is the focus is on the practical application of that theory to everyday life for someone who's trying to follow the stoic path. And you mentioned several scholars, all of which, you know, I, I admire, and they all do a very good job on the theoretical side. And in, in uh, the case of uh, Long and Gill, some very good ethical work too. I, I think Christopher Gill described your book as challenging and accessible. And I think those are two words that are very appropriate for it. And by that, I mean, you know, you acknowledge and you mention by name Ryan Holiday's efforts to simplify, to put it kindly, stoicism into a very palatable package for the masses. And I think there is a, a tendency, even more than, than his book, there, that's, that's kind of a tendency to just let's keep trying to make it simpler and simpler so that it's accessible to everybody. And I think you've done a great job of balancing the accessibility of the work, but not making it simple, not, make, not, not excluding the theory, not excluding some of the academic rigor that, quite frankly, is necessary to put this together so that you can live it. And you don't skip over that in order to try to appeal to the masses or make it um, a popular book. And I, and I appreciated that very much in the area of shared mind and and the difference that it makes you you had a couple of passages here that jumped out at me and in demanding that we remain indifferent to what occurs externally to us epictetus is not prescribing that we live passively in relation to our sound our surrounding social or physical worlds and then uh, the message embedded in this brief indication of where we will head in this book is this a stoic can be engaged with the world around them, particularly where circumstances require their contribution to the common benefit, while not being irrationally destabilized by the world during their contribution to it. And I think that is what you were just talking about. There is this sense that we create this fortress in our mind that protects us from all of the externals, and we almost 
it becomes uh, our own, our internal Epicurean garden where we're safe from anything out there. And uh, your book is basically it's a it's not just a subtle push; it's a kick out the door. It's you know, hey, this is not this is not what Stoicism is. It's it's out there. You just need to be you need to prepare the internal so that you can be out there. That both in the you know in the shared mind. Uh, chapter and in the chapter on common bodies, both of which go, I think, deeply and profoundly into the physics of Stoics. Well, yeah, I think that's really the practical impetus of the book is that I see certain applications of Stoicism which do appeal to a lot of people, which do set up this this territorial divide between one's own mind and the rest of the world. And I think if people are coming to Stoicism for therapeutic reasons in that they need some kind of therapeutic response to anxieties that they're feeling. And their first exposure to the philosophy tells them that they have to defend their mental turf against the rest of the world. Look, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm not trained in this, but I can't help but think that kind of alienating perspective wouldn't actually be that therapeutic at all. Nor is it actually consistent with the philosophy because what we see in terms of their characterization of mind is that we aren't merely these observers of nature or the world. We aren't these separated rationalizers of an external nature or world. We are that nature and that world, and we are an expression of it. And there we need to understand the physics. If we're going to understand why we are so embedded and integrated within this system for the Stoics, we need to read that through the physics, uh, which... Again, as you've indicated, it's so prominent in my book, my attention to the physics. And I think when we talk about physics, it can start to sound a little abstract because we're talking about a structure that's bigger than us individually. But there's nothing abstract about it in the day-to-day. -day. It's, it's very practical to consider about how you and the person standing beside you share a common fate in being these component parts of a bigger mechanism. And... It's just my argument, and I think yours too, and a lot of other, uh, there are other people who share this view that that is actually more therapeutic, to look at the world that way, rather than the idea of defending individuality in, in, in the ways that certain self-help applications of philosophy do. Yes, and it supports you know, what the Stoics argued even in ancient times, which was that uh, all three of these pieces, the logic, the physics, and the ethics, are necessary for it to be not just a holistic philosophical system theoretically, but for the ability to apply it. And your approach through the idea of shared mind and common body, I think more than any other book that I've, I've read, makes the connection between us as the individual and the world and all the other individuals and the cosmos as a whole. And I think this is the message that comes through in your book is that this is what it's all about. And it's a, it's a message that is overlooked in, in, in a lot of uh, modern writings, meaning it's, it's all about the cosmopolis. It's not about the individual. The individual is a part of that, a part of the whole. But if you don't ever get out of the part and into the whole, then you've really missed the point of the practice to begin with. You've missed, you, you're, you're stuck in the first circle of oikiosis and you're not expanding beyond that. Yeah, precisely. It, uh, really the presiding message within the book, which you have recognized, is that whenever we think and whenever we act, we do so with an awareness that we are embedded within the system. We are as... Epictetus to Marcus Aurelius to Seneca will describe us as being parts of this whole. 
It requires a great humility to do that. It's not relinquishing individuality. It's contextualizing individuality. It doesn't say that we have zero control over how we think, but it says that we have been fated to have control over certain things. Can we adhere to that fate? Can we adhere to that nature? Uh, again, this isn't a negation of individuality. I'm not asking anyone to relinquish entirely the notion of the self. It's rather a reconceptualization of the self. And every time you step out the door, every time you think, every time you're aggrieved, how do you see yourself? Is it as someone who's defending themselves against everything else? Or do you see yourself as part of an integrated set of causes and effects? And as you know, Marcus Aurelius says, do you, do you subscribe to the theory of providence or atoms? And, and, it, and of course, he's positing that we live in this providential universe. And, and what happens to us is, is prescribed. We have a capacity, we have an individualized capacity to respond to that accordingly. Uh, so we're not, I'm not removing the possibility of being an individual. I'm contextualizing it, as I think the Stoics do, within something greater than the individual. Yeah, and I, I would like to emphasize that because that was one of, to be frank, that was one of my concerns when I started reading the book. I thought, you know, okay, here's a sociologist that's going to turn this into some kind of, right. uh, you know, collectivism, an argument for collectivism, and you don't do that. I think you strike a really good balance between the individual and the and the whole, the part in the whole. It's just that it's a balance that's so predominantly missing in most Stoic writings that you know, some people pick it up and they might think you're focusing a lot on that, but it's necessary. To me, this is a book for our time. This is a book that, it, meaning our time in the world of Stoicism, for people to get out of the Epicurean garden and get out into the into the Stoic cosmopolis. Um, I would like to dig down a little bit more on this idea of shared minds. I believe it was in shared minds. Was it shared minds or common bodies that you dealt with the the daimon? Uh, shared minds, yes. Okay, and I guess you know what was what struck me, and I. I, it took me three readings of Shared Mind before I even moved on in the book because your emphasis on it was so strong and I hadn't read that anywhere else that it was very provocative, very challenging mm. because even someone like myself who has who has been consistent in my presentation of Stoicism as being a fragment of the divine, it was more than that. It was the, not just that I am a fragment and I share in this fragment, but it was the connection between the shared fragment and the interaction with uh, everybody in that cosmopolis, mm. all, all human beings. And I would love for you to talk a little bit about that. Well, it is provocative. It's not intended to be necessarily, but it just will be by nature because of how it differs from common characterizations of the mind within uh, with, in, according to Stoic philosophy, supposedly, as being this uh, really individualized aspect of ourself. And of course, in one regard it is, but if we think about the inherent link be between our mind and how we think rationally and how we act accordingly, our sense of rationality, how we think about rationality, how what we perceive to be rational, that isn't something that we've conceived of on our own. We've derived that sense from the universe. And how do we derive it? We derive it through our mind. Uh, it isn't our own concept. It's inherited. And it's inherited not only by us, but it's inherited by everyone else, depending on how they're behaving, of course. So, or depending on how they're behaving, we'll reflect on how they're according with what they have inherited. What I really wanted to emphasize in that part of the, of the chapter was this idea that 
or some of the Stoics, and we can talk about the Daimon in that regard, um, we have this fragment of this universal mind. Uh, later on, Diogenes Laertius is not necessarily the most reliable uh, commentator or source for these ideas, but nevertheless, we can't discount the fact that through him we get a number of the early Stoic ideas on, on this topic. And then we get some ideas from Posidonius as well, um, where he's discussing the uh, the daimon and the relationship of it to our mind. And then, of course, Marcus Aurelius will talk about our mind in collective terms and saying that the universe itself is a mind. So we get all of these positions which show that the greater structure is mind, that our individual uh, seats for thinking are mind, and that there is this connection between our thinking and the universe's thinking, and that's this thing, or some of them, called the daimon or the daemon. And uh, not only does the daemon or the daemon, not only does it give us these normative ways of being rational, but rather it, according to some of the sources, some of the accounts, it really guides us in how we think. And so once we acknowledge that there is an aspect of our mind, a really pivotal aspect of our mind that is a trace of something that is not our mind alone and that we share it with other people, well, from that, it's inevitable that we're going to have to characterise our rational relationships as, as social, which, of course, the Stoics do, as communal uh, and as sharing in these kinship relations. So when Seneca talks about how when we act, or sorry, when we think we should we do so in a way that's rational if we do it according to common interests. When Epictetus says the same thing, this is the heart of that theory, is the idea that when we're thinking rationally, we're doing it with a derived or an inherited uh, way of thinking, and we're doing it with a derived or, or inherited way of thinking that accords with other people's derived or inherited ways of thinking, which is, quite simply, to think rationally. Yeah, it reminded me of uh, the closing argument of Hedo and the Inner Citadel, where he he argues that all of the, the fundamental doctrines or dogmas of Stoicism come out of the idea that our rationality comes from a universal source. Mm. Um, can I just add, like when we're when we're trying to digest that idea that our mind is something common, that our mind has a common constitution, a common origin, uh, that it's a common entity, and and rationality therefore is our rationality is a common thing. It takes a great humility, I think. And I, uh, part of the problem might be that in with our modern idea of the mind and our modern idea of liberalism and, and so on, that maybe as an era, we haven't quite, we, we haven't quite been trained in how to be humble in that way. Because to relinquish, to situate your own mind and your own rationality within something bigger than yourself is to say that you don't author it entirely yourself. Um, it doesn't mean that you don't have any authorship over its practice, but it does mean that right. that, that you didn't originate it. It doesn't. It doesn't begin with you. Uh, I think it says that Paul Woodruff, his book on uh, reverence, touches on that. It, it and, and to me, this falls into that category. Yeah. You know, this idea, and he's not approaching it from a religious perspective. Mm -hmm. He's just talking about the idea of uh, reverence. I mean, it, it, reverence even for us, it's to society as a whole. There is a place for us. It's not just all about me. And we do live in a time where 
you know, everything is about me, 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 mm. me, and what I can get and what's, you know, uh, all of the above. But reverence, and then the flip side of that is the sense of gratitude that comes from that because yeah, good point. we are recipients of this. Common bodies. Can you explain that? Well, what I've done with the book essentially is with each of the five chapters is pick an aspect of ourselves that we might typically or conventionally characterize as being uh, individualized, as being something that is just us. And with the mind, mm -hmm. we, we can interrogate that supposition. And with the body, we can too. So when I'm looking at the body and describing it as, as common, I'm looking at the substance of the body as being part of this uh, universal flesh, so to speak. And, and we are one expression of it. And one of my favorite descriptions of the body, let's say, but more than the body as well, comes from Marcus Aurelius when he discusses how he describes the, the, the matter of the world, the material of the world as, as wax in this description. He says, and, and at once the wax is a horse and then it gets melted down. And this is possibly a, a reference to uh, the conflagrative cycles and and so it's at once a horse and then it melts down, it becomes a tree and then it melts down and it becomes us. And then it melts down and it becomes something else. So really I'm, I'm exploring that kind of sentiment. The idea that you look distinct. We all look distinct as embodied creatures. And the, the idea of the body is very important in Stoicism as well, where the earliest Stoics intervene into preceding Platonic ideas. And will say that everything is... Every, everything, that's, uh, everything that exists is a body, which is quite different from Plato's. So the body has a real heritage uh, in terms of its importance in Stoicism. Uh, but when, we, when I'm looking at it in terms of a common sense, I'm looking at the substance of the body. What is it that makes up my body? Funnily enough, it's, it's the same stuff that makes up the body of other people, and it's the same stuff that makes up the body of the universe as a whole. And so we get then those great descriptions from Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius about us being limbs of this universal body and about how they all have to act in cooperation. And, and if one limb of the body is going this way and one's going this way, then there's going to be a problem. But the universe in its entirety doesn't have this problem. It, it is a perfect body. It's, 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 it's designed with great order. And, and of course, that's the equation of rationality with order. So... So my chapter is a study of, of that idea of the commonality of the substance that makes us up. Okay. And again, I guess that brings you back to a little bit of sense of humility, mm. the stuff that we're made of. Yeah. Uh, your next chapter, Caring for the Self, is Caring for the Other. And here, uh, I mean, you've obviously made connections in the first two chapters between the individual and the collective, but here it becomes a little bit more explicit in, in the terms of uh, oikiosis and that caring for ourselves is caring for others and caring for others is caring for ourselves. So what was your intention there? So again, it was to interrogate this idea that something that seems really individualized, uh, self-preservation, is actually a trace of something that uh, is not necessarily individualized or personalized at all. Uh, and instead that when we do have self-preserving inclinations, they're not necessarily simply for our individual survival or health or benefit, but rather they're a trace of something bigger. And so in the chapter, I explore that 
fairly prominent distinction between pleasure and self-preservation that the Stoics and their contemporaries will make. Because it's important in that through that distinction, we get the understanding of self-preservation as being akin to living a rational existence. So it's not about maintaining one's survival. It's not necessarily even about maintaining one's health, although the discussion around preferred indifference and, of course, Aristotle's accommodation of, um, of some externals into eudaimonic happiness is relevant there. But without getting too complicated, it is really a study of ourselves attending to ourselves because of our integration within a grander system. And there I can, again, raise all of the great material around the interconnections that we share with other humans and how self-preserving is something that, is, even if we don't realize it, is, is uh, the effects radiate beyond us. Um, it reflects our citizenship in, in communities, both small, i.e. localized, and, uh, and the cosmopolitanism itself. Um, what I ultimately want to argue in that chapter is that thinking and acting with mutual needs and common benefits in mind is self-preserving. And that's primarily because the, uh, the former, the mutual needs and common benefits are rationalized and they are attuned or in accordance with uh, the whole. So that's, that's the argument there. It's a, it's trying to, Redefine self-preservation as being about the individual to be, to be about something grander. Yeah, and that is something that is so frequently overlooked is the that oikiosis, which is actually the foundation for Stoic ethics, comes from Stoic physics. It's a concept out of Stoic physics, and the self-preservation is, even though the term, I guess, you know, literally means self-preservation, but it it really is a concept that is social conceptually, because it so quickly expands. As a process of moral development, it so quickly expands or is supposed to expand if a person develops normally and morally to, you know, not just preserving yourself, but that mm -hmm. concern for your family, concern for your neighbors, your community, your nation, and then people in the uh, you know, worldwide and the cosmos as a whole. Which brings us to the next chapter, which is uh, knowledge and social education. There was a lot in there that I found very intriguing and you know would love for you to discuss that yeah this is a bit of a mixed bag this chapter it it looks at a few different theories of knowledge and a few different takes on education as well uh first my, the heart of the chapter is probably initially when we do look at the discussion transtemporally they're not peers but between uh sextus empiricus and Epictetus on the possibility of whether we can know and whether it's justifiable to assent. And through that discussion, I really just want to set up the, uh, the idea of the Stoic belief in knowledge. But however, we need to redefine how we might consider that knowledge to be constituted. So what do I mean by that? Stoic knowledge, and Seneca's a great source on this too, isn't it? Knowledge isn't necessarily about having a set of facts that we can individually recite about the world. You know, Seneca yeah. has that great uh, tirade against pointless traveling, about going around the world just so you can acquire these facts so you can come back to your hometown and show off. And right. it, seem, it seems like you're quite worldly. And I think what he's actually saying is that 
the real worldliness that a stoic will have is when they're they do have the knowledge of of their relationships to that world rather than just be able to recite things about it um Mm -hmm. so that's part of it Uh, and and the other part is really a study on training and what does it mean to be training uh, as a stoic who is given the opportunities to be training in stoicism so we look at Masonius Rufus there as well in his discussion on um, women of the era and the idea that stoicism is a really public square philosophy. It's, it's uh, not necessarily something that's just studied in books. It's, it has a, a greater public purchase. And I think that's important because then we can attend to the two forms of social or sociality or being social in stoicism. And one is quite disregarded and uh, criticised to a degree by Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus about not being, and Seneca, about not being too caught up in gossip and trivial social affairs, let's say. But in another regard, the social is really celebrated as being integral to living stoically. uh, And that takes us back to a lot of what we've already discussed around the inherent communal and collaborative and cooperative features of Stoicism. Can I ask, uh, in terms of education, since I'm with the College of Stoic Philosophers, is there anything mm-hmm. that you see uh, in in reading or researching and writing this book that you thought might jump out in terms of, of educational processes that would be, that is maybe missing or that might be helpful? I'm, I'm having a child soon and I've been talking with my partner about how I would love, and I think, I don't, I think, I don't think I'm the only one here, how great it would be if you grew up in a schooling system, which integrated some basic stoic ideas around what you share with other people, uh, rather than necessarily, you know, what can you do for yourself? How can you achieve? How can you do better to the, to the detriment of others? Um, so in terms of the literal training of stoicism in, in modern society, let's call it, I have been thinking about how useful it could be at a young age to be exposed to these ideas. And again, I, what ideas? Primarily, I think this idea that what you consider to be internal about yourself and what you take great pride in and what you feel great shame about, it is, in some regards, controlled by you. But it is also shared with everyone else. And so you should feel this real affinity with other people. And on on your first day at school and your first day at college and high school, the really intimidating days, how can you approach that with the mentality of affinity with others? And, and to what extent would that degrade or, or lessen the, the, the associating anxiety of, of these kinds of experiences? Um, yeah. Put hmm. stoicism into the classroom from an early age would be my answer. Yeah, no, that would, that would be incredible. And I think one of the things that I think is, um, I don't know. I say I say we were lacking in the modern Stoic world is a sense of community, and I know you know the the modern Stoics have gone a long way toward creating uh, local meetup groups, and and those mm-hmm. are very helpful for them. Uh, doing that from the traditional perspective has been a little bit more difficult. You know, I have a a small group that I meet with on a weekly basis, and for me, being able to you know have an hour with five or six fellow Stoics that you know are all kind of on the same path and trying to do the same things. It, really beneficial you know, for all of us and just just being able to share ideas and talk and that's an educational process and that's a training process and and it's and it's a, it's the social part of it that i think gets it's not overlooked it's 
it just becomes ugly when it gets on Facebook and other social media mm. uh, yeah. environments, you know, because it becomes shouting matches and it becomes arguments and there's very little education or training that, that actually goes on. It, and um, so being able to take it off of those platforms and actually have face-to-face -face meetings with people and see other uh, human beings talking to, even though it's not in person, uh, this is, I guess this is 21st century in person, right? You know, you're in Australia, I'm here in Tampa, Florida, <laughs> and we're... <laughs> For 21st century in person, fortunately, we have this technology that the ancient Stoics didn't have so that we can connect with people in ways that they couldn't have even have dreamed of. Your influence in that space, I think, is important to recognize too, and how different your interpretation is compared to a lot of the convention. And the idea about how do we converse about Stoicism? How do we train each other in a way that's uh, receptive to each other? That is not necessarily aggressive. I think one of the misconceptions about Stoicism is that it's really this really matter-of-fact, brutal, uh, uh, black-and-white kind of, of philosophy, and and the personas that new adoptees of the philosophy take on, therefore, does seem to mimic that. You know, we get those lines in Epictetus about you sad and sorry creature with your sad and sorry ways. You're sick, but you could you, you, are you too sick to study philosophy? You're going to be sick at home anyway. All this kind of stuff, it... It gets misconceived. The philosophy becomes misconceived as one of, I, th I think it becomes too aggressive sometimes. And again, yep. recognizing the affinities that we share with each other according to Stoicism should potentially, theoretically, alleviate some of some of that antagonism that people exhibit when they interact with each other. And you've you, as you've said, that happens a lot online. Yeah, it does. You know, and I, I think it has. Uh, stabilized a lot. You know, it, you talked about in your, in your introduction, the explosion of Stoicism, which occurred really in about 2015. You know, the modern Stoic movement started in 2012. And about 2015 is when it really ramped up. And, and uh, there was some, some, some pretty tense exchanges that went on. You know, the result of that is we, we created the, the traditional Stoicism group and the idea, realizing that we were taking two different approaches to this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think I've come to the place where I can I can appreciate modern Stoicism uh, literally as a, a different philosophy. Meaning, I can appreciate it uh, in the same way that I appreciate, you know, Epicureanism or cynicism or anything else. Where I can say, well, they just have they've they've chosen a different path, and uh, it's not the path that the ancient Stoics chose. They're even though we share the name, they are differing to the extent that it is a a different lineage. You know, Brad Inwood does a great job in his 2018 book of, of tracing the lineage of modern Stoicism back to you know, Aristo of Chios, a branch or a divergence that occurred in the time of Zeno when you know, Ariston went his own way and created his own school. And uh, Inwood calls that minimal Stoicism, meaning that they weren't not in a derogatory way, but meaning that they were only interested in a portion of Stoicism. They were interested in the ethics like Aristo was. He didn't see the value in the physics and the logic. Some people do. That was my position from in 2015 was that my understanding of Stoicism, which came from people like A.A. A. Long and, and Sedley and Gill, uh, it wasn't something that I invented. I, I'm not smart enough to do that, but I read their books and said, okay, well, this is, this is what Stoicism is. Uh, and I'm thankful that they were around. And I said, well, if this is what it is, then this is the way we should be practicing it. I, I felt that that needed to be kept alive. And that's what we've, we've been attempting to do. We'll close. Hopefully this won't take us into too deep of a hole, but your final chapter on collective happiness, um, 
I'll let you talk about it first in general, and then I would like to get into Posidonius and the uh, the differentiation in Stoic psychology that you present. But uh, I'll let you just talk about the chapter generically. Okay, um, collective happiness. So it was identifying as the culminating chapter, of the, as the final chapter of the book. It was identifying happiness through its various definitions or terminologies as the ultimate stoic state and also emphasizing that happiness for the stoics is a rational process rather than an emotional outcome so we've got a distinction between the conventional understanding of happiness in the modern day and what the stoics were talking about regarding happiness um so what does it mean by rational it it means that it's distinct from this individual psychological end that we can achieve uh, but rather it's something that we partake in. The Stoics, of course, are practice-based. It's a practice-based philosophy. And what does practice mean? Well, in some regards, it means that it's a systematized activity. Rational means an ordered system. So it means behaving and thinking in accordance with this system that the Stoics called nature. So happiness, therefore, for the Stoics, is, is a really communal function. It can never be individualized. You can never be uh, separately happy, according to the Stoics. Uh, and this is obviously consistent with the rest of the book. And where I think we might be heading now uh, regarding the final part of the book concerns the question of whether if happiness is living rationally, which is living with this communal orientation, which is an orientation about recognizing ourselves as a part of a whole, if that's what happiness is, then does that mean that when we're irrationally unhappy, according to the definition, does that mean we're not living communally anyway? So I, I explore these kinds of questions through Posidonius and others. Okay. And with regard to Posidonius, and I'm not an expert on him, I'll be honest, I've kind of skipped over Posidonius in most cases mm -hmm. because I, you know, the understanding that he disagreed with in, in some uh, critical areas with uh, Chrysippus, it hasn't been mm -hmm. something that I've spent a lot of time on. But uh, you bring up, yeah, there's, I should say, there's a, there's a common conception that Poseidonius brought Platonic psychology back into Stoicism in the uh, division of the, the mind, that we no longer have a unified mind, that we have a tripartite mind with, you know, in, in Plato's terminology, uh, you know, warring factions, the, the chariot driver trying to maintain control of uh, reason, trying to maintain control of the irrational horses and the emotions that are just, you know, running rampant. And I think it's fair to say, and I think you presented in that way, that uh, that uh, some of the material that we have for pinning this on Poseidonius comes from, you know, Galen, who was basically hated Chrysippus and would have done anything he could to make Chrysippus look bad. So we may have a little bit of, uh, of, of, of an overstatement of some of this. And while I haven't read it, I was glad to see that you referenced uh, Cooper's chapter from the book where he tries to, to, to make that argument that, you know, Galen, it, it may not be as dramatic a difference as yeah. what some people portray it as. So I'd love for you to talk about that because you actually, you use the, the term uh, irrational faculty in the book. Mm, yeah, and so that's the question. And Cooper's, you know, the source of this kind. Cooper and Gill as well. 
they've written some really important articles on whether the Posidonian interpretation, the Chrysippian interpretation are wildly different. And what does wildly different mean? Do we essentially have internally a, a rational faculty that, let's say, operates by degrees? So are we more or less rational with, the, with this singular faculty within us? And we are in this battle constantly to, uh, it's almost like if you think about it quantifiably, uh, to make it more rational. Um, is that the mm -hmm. case? Is that what our internal constitution is? Or do we have separate, uh, separate parts of our, our soul, our, our mind, our internality that are dedicated to different functions? Some of them rational, some of them irrational, some of them are desirous and appetitive. Um, and Plato's original conception was somewhat of a metaphor in a way for different parts of a city-state functioning well together. And likewise, this idea that we'd have different parts of our internality functioning, functioning well because they'd each have their dedicated labor, let's say. Um, and so the question that I, I explore whether, and it's only through Posidonius because I think we, we don't have enough from other Stoics on both positions to really appraise this question, but through Posidonius, whether we can say that uh, we do have a singular faculty or whether we have competing or complementary faculties within us. And the main question to come from that is whether if we do have an irrational sense of, uh, part of ourselves that is distinct from our rational part, is the irrational part does it, is it, is it structured in the way that the rational part is? So by that, I mean, can it self develop? Because one of the main aspects of stoicism and something I explore in that previous chapter on education is the idea of self-development. And we are given this, this, uh, communal thing called the mind. We, we, we it's, it's a part of nature. We don't, uh, conceive it ourselves. But nevertheless, the Stoics do talk about how we train it and how we develop this habit and how we uh, internalize nature and how we internalize its, its rational processes. And so we can become more and more in tune with being rational. And that's why the Stoics will also say that children and certain other people, groups of people won't be able to be rational in the way that a fully developed adult will. And... So what I'm asking in that question is, does our, if we, if we have a separate emotional faculty or a separate irrational faculty, I should say, not emotional, if we have a separate irrational faculty, which is a huge question, unresolved question, if that does exist, can it develop in the same way that our rational faculty can? And I do that through some of the Posidonian literature. Uh, it's a fascinating question because it does have ramifications for what it means when we are irrational. When we are irrational, are we completely separated from the rational order of the world? Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus will make these big statements that we are, that we are divorced, et cetera, et cetera, from, from the system to some extent anyway. Uh, so part of the purpose of that question is to just canvas some of the ideas, some of the scholarship on this question. It's not necessarily to to bring a definite answer, although I do, a propo I do propose an answer, um, but rather it in integrates Cooper, it integrates Gill, and it integrates some of the more balanced perspectives uh, in arguing that maybe one of the original ideas on this position in Stoicism from a crisis, 
and maybe one of the proceeding ideas um, from Posidonius aren't necessarily that different. There's going to be some differences, but they aren't wildly different. We can't reduce them to, mm -hmm. uh, to polar opposites. Well, I would say you've definitely, like I said, challenged me to go back and, and read Posidonius. That is a, a blank spot for, to a large degree in, in my education process. Uh, I, would, I will close by, well, first of all, I'll ask, is there anything else about the book that we haven't covered that you would like the Stoicism on Fire listeners to know about the book? Uh, maybe as a, you know, a, a, a reason to buy it for themselves. Is there something that I, we haven't talked about today? I don't know if we haven't talked about it today. It's been quite a comprehensive chat, but I feel like I, I would like anyone approaching the book to do it with the idea of what, or the question of what about if the thing that makes me, me, my mind, whatever it might be, whatever it is that you think makes you, you, uh, are you willing to recognize that this is a trace of something beyond you? And it's not about losing you. I'm not asking you to negate yourself. I'm asking you to bring a reading of yourself that coheres with this stoic idea of system. And, and can we all do that? And, and can we all be uh, humble in that way and recognize ourselves as expressions of something else, as involved in each other? Um, that's, I think, the, the frame of mind that is necessary when, when approaching the book. And also, of course, people don't have to agree with the book. Uh, it's this. This is, and it, I think this is a fairly orthodox interpretation according to the traditional Stoic view. I don't think it's a very adventurous mm -hmm. reading in that regard. But I think in the modern context, it is adventurous because of how Stoicism has veered away from those uh, orthodox original positions. No, I, I agree. I think the people who listen to and appreciate my podcast will read your book and love it. And the the people that uh, don't listen and hate my podcast because I present a, a traditional form of stoicism might have uh, many of the same feelings about your book. So <laughs> it is, you uh, <laughs> you uh, you definitely approach it from a traditional perspective or orthodox, orthodox perspective. I didn't find any places where you, uh, in my opinion, where you went outside the bounds of that. Uh, you are probably a little bit more, what do I say, a little bit, have a little bit more uh, openness to Poseidonius than anyone I've mm -hmm. read in the past, but I can't, I don't have a position on that right now. So it's not, I can't say that I would, you know, disagree or what I, that's something that I'm going to have to dig down on uh, because I'm, I'm not really well versed on Poseidonius. Um, I will close by saying, I definitely recommend this book to anybody that listens to the podcast. Christopher Gill again described it as, challenging and uh, accessible. And I would say that it's challenging to the extent that it's a lot like, hey, those, uh, the Inner Citadel, meaning it's not a quick read, not because it's a difficult technical uh, book, but because it's thought provoking, it's challenging. It required me, like I said, I read, shared mine three times before I could really feel like, okay, I, I, I wasn't mistaken the first time I read it or the second time I read it. It takes some digestion. It's it's not a it's not a thick book. What is it? 100 and, 175 pages. It's not a huge book, but it there's a lot there. So that that's the comprehensive part of it. That's the challenging piece of it. Highly recommend it. And uh, Will, I, I thank you very much for being willing to come on the podcast and talk about the book. I wish the book well. And 
And I'm hoping that you will continue to write. You're, you're somewhat, I would say, a, a new person on the scene in the terms of uh, Stoic books and the community. And I, I hope this isn't the last that we're going to hear from you and hope to be reading your books in the future. No, thank you so much for having me on, Chris. I, I have great respect for your project and uh, to be aligned with it makes sense to me, but uh, to be celebrated, have the book celebrated by it is, uh, is really quite flattering for me. So thank you very much. I thank you and I wish you well. Thank you for listening to Stoicism on Fire. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving a positive review on Apple Podcasts. That tells others that this podcast is worth listening to and helps introduce more people to the ancient spiritual practices of the Stoics. If you're interested in exploring traditional Stoicism further, you will find plenty of resources at traditionalstoicism.com. If you're ready for an online mentored training program, check out the College of Stoic Philosophers at collegeofstoicphilosophers.org. That is where I received my initial education and training in the theory and practice of Stoicism. If you're interested in a social media environment where you can find some like-minded fellow travelers, join us on Facebook in the Traditional Stoicism group. If you have feedback for me or a great podcast idea, send me an email at chris at traditionalstoicism.com. Until next time, I hope you will continue practicing the traditional form of Stoicism where the cosmos is alive with the meaning and purpose of the divine creative fire of the ancient Stoics. I wish you well and encourage you to keep your practice of Stoicism on fire.